Jeremiah chapter 44, beginning in verse 20. Then Jeremiah spoke to all the people, the men, the women, and all the people who had given him that answer, saying, The incense that you burned in the cities of Judah and in the streets of Jerusalem, you and your fathers, your kings and your princes and the people of the land, did not the Lord remember them? And did it not come into his mind? So the Lord could no longer bear it because of the evil of your doings and because of the abominations which you committed. Therefore, your land is a desolation, an astonishment and a curse without an inhabitant as it is this day. Because you have burned incense and because you have sinned against the Lord and you have not obeyed the voice of the Lord or walked in his law, in his statutes or in his testimonies. Therefore, this calamity has happened to you as at this day. Moreover, Jeremiah said to all the people and all the women, hear the word of the Lord, all Judah who are in the land of Egypt. Thus says the Lord of hosts, the God of Israel, saying, you and your wives have spoken with your mouths and fulfilled with your hands, saying, we will surely keep our vows that we have made to burn incense to the queen of heaven and pour out drink offerings to her. You will surely keep your vows and perform your vows. Therefore, hear the word of the Lord, all Judah who dwell in the land of Egypt. Behold, I have sworn by my great name, says the Lord. That my name shall no more be named in the mouth of any man of Judah in all the land of Egypt, saying, the Lord God lives. Behold, I will watch over them for adversity and not for good. And all the men of Judah who are in the land of Egypt shall be consumed by the sword and by famine until there is an end to them. Yet a small number who escape the sword shall return from the land of Egypt to the land of Judah. And all the remnant of Judah who have gone to the land of Egypt to dwell there shall know whose words will stand. Mine. Or theirs. And this shall be a sign to you. By the way, in verse 29, this is the only sign mentioned in the entire book of Jeremiah. And this shall be a sign to you, says the Lord, that I will punish you in this place, that you may know that my words will surely stand against you for adversity. Thus says the Lord, behold, I will give Pharaoh, Hophra, king of Egypt, into the hand of his enemies, into the hand of those who seek his life, as I gave Zedekiah, the king of Judah, into the hand of Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, his enemy, who sought his life. In chapter 44, remember what the Lord had said. Chapter 44, verses 20 through 27. Remain in Egypt and die. At the end of the chapter, between verses 28 and 30, you will suffer war and famine until all of you are dead. He says, return to Judah and live. And then he says, only a small number will escape death and return from Judah into Egypt. They were left with a choice and they made a very bad choice. They were left with a choice of whether or not to obey God, but then they chose to disobey God. They were left with a choice to participate in the plans and purposes that God had for their future or to rebel against those plans and purposes. And remember, they make their way into Egypt. And as you will recall, in the Old Testament, Egypt becomes a type and a picture of the world. In this sense, God called the children of Israel out of the place of slavery and bondage into a promised land where they could love and serve the Lord. And so it is with you as Christians. You've been called out of the world. You have been called to separate yourself from that place. You've been called to separate yourself from its affections and designs so that you could know and love the Lord. And so the Bible makes it abundantly clear that we have this amazing opportunity that we don't have to live the life that we necessarily grew up with. 
that we can love and honor and serve God. The Bible teaches the basic need for human beings is a spiritual change. In Luke chapter 13, verse 3, Jesus said, except you repent, you shall all likewise perish. And so what can we do to change? How can we change the emptiness in our heart to fullness, the darkness to light? How can we make the guilt that's inside of us? Become freedom and joy and forgiveness and acceptance. Matthew Henry wrote, to those whom God finds impenitent sinners, he will be found an implacable judge. Because there really are two kinds of people. Those who find a way to recognize their sin and turn to the Savior and those who don't, those who continue to embrace their sin. Last time we were together, we talked about the fact that you can change your hair and you can change your residence and you can change your job and you can change your partner and you can change your mind. But you can't change your heart unless there is a supernatural intervention. There's only one thing that will bring a lasting change. Now. I want you to imagine a world where all you could do is sin. That you could never repent. That the wickedness that's inside of you is destined to remain inside of you. The emptiness will always be empty. The guilt will always be present. The misery will always be there. And some of you have had those kinds of experiences in your past. You wondered if the pain would ever go away. You wondered if the emptiness would ever go away. You wondered if the bad patterns of your life would ever go away. But that's not the kind of world that we live in. We live in a world where Jesus Christ has come into the world and he's created a mechanism where you and I can experience hope and grace and forgiveness and love. The Bible promises that the sinner can be cleansed, the fallen can be lifted up, the prodigal can come home, the enslaved can go free. You can experience a lasting change of heart. So what about the sinner who won't change? What of the person who won't turn? The Bible describes the walk of the sinner as vain. They walk in vain or an empty show, it says in Psalm 39, 6. The sinner's walk is described as proud. A wicked man walks with a froward mouth. That means perverse or crooked speech. The idea is that the wicked person in Proverbs chapter 6, verse 12, can't do anything other than open up their mouth and out of the abundance of their heart, their mouth speaks. And it's always something wicked. In darkness, in Ecclesiastes 2, 14, their hearts are stuck. Stubborn. They walk in the stubbornness of their own heart. Jeremiah said earlier in chapter 23, verse 17, in abomination, they walk after the heart of detestable things and their abominations. It says in Ezekiel chapter 11, verse 21, the Bible uses words like ignorance in John 12, 35 and bondage in Job 18, 8 to describe the way that the sinner is forced to live. And so. That sermon that I just read is Jeremiah's final condemnation. It's his final sermon. It's the last word that Jeremiah will have to the people who have left Judah and who find themselves in Egypt. It's the last recorded writing of Jeremiah. His ministry began in 626 B.C., and it ends with this flight into Egypt in 581 B.C. And again, it becomes a speech, a sermon, if you will, to a group of people who have left the promised land and embraced wickedness. And in verse 20, it says, then Jeremiah spoke to all the people, the men, the women and all the people who had given him that answer. For those of you who have just joined me, you may not know what that answer is. And it's found in verses 15 through through 19. You'll remember that in, in chapter 44 in verses 15 through 19, um, the people had made the statement 
It says, then all the men who knew that their wives had burned incense to other gods with all the women who stood by a great multitude and all the people who dwelt in the land of Egypt in Pathros answered Jeremiah saying, as for the word that you have spoken to us in the name of the Lord, we're not going to listen to you. The answer that they had given Jeremiah is, please turn from your sin. Let's all go back home to Judah and let's participate in the plans and the purposes that God has for us. Their answer, we're not going to listen to you. We're not going to listen to what the Bible says. We're not going to listen to what the prophet has to say. We're not going to listen to the promises of God. We're not going to listen to you. The Lord had spelled out clearly his will concerning the remnant. Stay in the land. I have a plan for you. Don't go back. The remnant's answer is a picture of the stubborn human Heart that is unwilling to repent. On my radio program earlier this week, a lady called me. And she was talking about a friend who found herself in that painful, terrifying circumstance of having an unwanted pregnancy. And she said, what should I do? What should I say? And on the radio program, I said, plead, plead for the life of the baby. Don't be afraid of what she might think or or what she might say. Don't think about how it might jeopardize your friendship. Remember that some people have a voice and some people don't have a voice. And so plead for the life of the baby. Beg her to spare her baby's life. Remind her that there's a plan and a purpose that God has for this baby's life. Remind her that she doesn't have to walk this path in loneliness and fear that there are people who will pray with her and be with her and stand with her as she makes the decision to do the right thing. And there may have been times in your life, I know that there have been times in my life when you had a difficult choice and a difficult decision and the choice was either going to honor God or dishonor God, to obey God or dishonor, to disobey God. And someone somewhere at some point begged you, begged you to go away from that path of self-destructive behavior and to embrace the plan of God. And so this particular picture, what does unrepentance look like? He's going to begin to describe it to us. He's going to begin to describe what do you do with a man, a woman, a child, a husband, a wife, a family member, a friend? What do you do with a person as you say, won't you turn from your sin? Won't you turn to the Savior? Won't you embrace what God has for you? And he he paints this picture. It's a picture of a failure to listen to God's word, a willingness to condone and engage in false worship. That's idolatry. The unequivocal rejection of God's word, a failure to embrace God's announcement of judgment, a continual worship of false idols here and in our text that idol was Ishtar or Ashtar she's referred to in the beginning of the chapter as the queen of heaven and the last time we were together remember I told you that this was in the ancient world the goddess of fertility she was the sum and the substance and the representation of reproduction And sexual immorality. And if you think that this sexualization and a preoccupation with sex is something unique to our generation, grow up. Every generation in every circumstance has faced the same critical issues in every generation. And so in verse 1... Or in verse 21, I'm, in, I'm ta- setting this p- particular portion aside of things that God cannot do. So Jeremiah speaks. He says, the incense that you burned in the cities of Judah and in the streets of Jerusalem, you and your fathers, your kings and your princes and the people of the land, did not the Lord remember them and did it not come into his mind? This is Jeremiah's way of saying Remember the wicked rebellion and idolatry that was practiced in the land of Judah? God hated it then and he hates it now. Do you think that just by moving a few miles down the road that the rebellion and the disobedience would all of a sudden be accepted by God? Because you're living in a in a wicked world and you're living in a world that is in rebellion and disobedience to God. 
And so here becomes part of the point. The Lord had not forgotten their past transgressions. The Lord knew all about the past. He knew all about the patterns of persistent wickedness and idolatry. And because he remembered all of those things, he's reminding them, you know what? I haven't forgotten about everything that you've done. I haven't forgotten about all of that stuff. But what's interesting and what's important for you to remember is that God isn't bringing this up in order to condemn them, but to remind them that there's a way out, that there's forgiveness and there's redemption and that there's hope and and, and that the sins can be forgiven. So but the Lord hadn't forgotten their past transgressions. He says the incense that you burned. In the 60s, I burned incense because it smelled cool. It was a whole 60s kind of a vibe. In the ancient world, people burned incense as a ritual expression because what they were taking was something that was physical. And in their way of thinking, by burning it and turning it into smoke, the fragrance would ascend into heaven and it became a type and a picture of prayer. And so in this particular instance, it means False prayers to false gods, useless prayer, pointless prayer. And so when he says the incense that you burn in the cities of Judah and in the streets of Jerusalem, you and your fathers, your kings and your princes and the people of the land, they were burnings of incense to false gods and goddesses. It becomes a type and a picture of pagan prayer. The unbelievers prayed. By the way, I'm going to ask you a question. Do you think believers pray? Yes. I'm going to ask you another question. Do you think unbelievers pray? Yeah, they do. Have you been watching the Olympics? You'll see the ladies, the gentlemen, they get up to to, to run their race, and you just hear them going. The camera will just... Close in tight and you'll see somebody go. There's all kinds of prayers that are going up to what gods and goddesses I don't necessarily know. But there's useless prayer and there's pointless prayer. For the people who don't have a right relationship with God in Christ. In verse 22 it says, so the Lord could no longer bear it. Because of the evil of your doings and because of the abominations which you committed. Therefore, your land is a desolation, an astonishment, a curse. And without an inhabitant, as it is to this day, it was again the Lord's reminder of saying, look, I judged Judah and Jerusalem because of the persistent wickedness and rebellion. Now you've come and you've left the promised land and you've gone back to the world and you continue to live like a person in the world. And so I've got to tell you something that it's not going to go ignored or neglected. And so here's the idea. The Lord hasn't forgotten their past transgressions. The Lord has been patient, patient. Patient for a very long time. So the Lord could no longer bear it. Now, look at that expression. Does that tell you that God is impatient or patient? If you're going to be fair, if you're going to be fair, you have to say, Lord, you've been very, very patient. You've been very, very patient. You've been very, very kind. You've been very, very long-suffering. And for those of you who have been walking with me through the book of Jeremiah, through chapter 1, chapter 2, chapter 10, chapter 20, chapter 30, chapter 35, chapter 40, you're going, man, he has been so stinking patient. But he could no longer bear it. The day came when God had to execute judgment. Once again, the Lord lists the reasons in broad terms because of the evil of your doings, because of the abominations which you committed. What do you suppose that word means? Abomination. It's the most graphic term that can be used in the Hebrew language to describe something that is disgusting. Revolting. 
It's like you go to your favorite Chinese restaurant and there's a dung beetle in your lo mein. And you just go, there is this sense in which your sensibilities are challenged internally. What does this mean? God judged them as a result of their wickedness, their idolatry, their persistent disobedience and a partial list. I did just a, a, the tiniest list of things that are called abominations in, in the Bible. Unclean things, Leviticus 7.21. The customs of the pagans, Leviticus 18.30. Idols, Second Chronicles 15.8. The sins of men, Psalm 14.1. Cheating, Micah 6.10. Lost souls, Revelation 21.8. A forward man, or perverse, or one who turns aside, Proverbs 3.32. A proud look, Proverbs 6.16. A lying tongue, Proverbs 6.17. Hands that shed innocent blood, Proverbs 6.17. Read abortion. A wicked scheming heart, Proverbs 6.18. Feet that are quick to sin, Proverbs 6.18. A false witness that speaks lies, Proverbs 6.19. A person who sows division or discord, Proverbs 6.19. Wickedness, Proverbs 8, verse 7. So the list could go on and on and on. A lot of the things fall into this category. But what it is, is the sum and a substance of an accumulation of those things that God detests. And then in verse 23, it says, because you burned incense. Remember, this is false prayers to false deities. And because you've sinned against the Lord and have not obeyed the voice of the Lord or walked in his law or in his statutes or in his testimonies. Therefore, this calamity has happened to you this day. Now, think about it. The short list, false prayers, sins against the Lord, disobedience, failure to walk according to the Bible. The Lord says, Did it ever occur to you that there might be a reason why these bad things are happening? What's the takeaway for us? Is there a relationship to what's going on inside of our head and inside of our heart and inside of our family and inside of our church and inside of our community and inside of our nation, does it have some sort of correspondence? You know, it's interesting to me. The Bible says that he hasn't dealt with you according to your sin or rewarded you according to your iniquity. You know what is really, really interesting about the Bible? Sometimes you don't get what you deserve. Sometimes God has been so patient and he's been so kind and he's been so generous. And because of his patience and his kindness and, and generosity, we're sometimes left with the impression that he doesn't really care what's going on inside of our head, inside of our heart. But the eventuality is that eventually it will catch up with you. Sin has consequences. And in verse 24, it says, moreover, Jeremiah said to all the peoples and to all the women, hear the word of the Lord, all Judah who are in the land of the Egypt. Jeremiah has a final message for the children of Judah who have taken refuge in Egypt. And, and I guess the way that I want you to think about it is all of the people who have left historical biblical Christianity or all of the apostate people or all of the people who are running from God, all of the people who have left the church and who have left fellowship with God and who've left friendship with God and they've returned back into the world and they they're trying to determine can I be a Christian and still live out in this world and just sort of act like everyone in the world but have Jesus in my heart somewhere buried deep inside but it's not going to affect anything that I do again you might think of these as Christians who have abandoned their faith Who've taken refuge in the world to all the people and to all the women in the world. The self is the center. You walk according to this world, it says in Ephesians chapter two, verse two. In other words, if you want to ask and answer the question, how can I tell if I'm a person who's in Christ or if I'm a person who's in the world? And the Bible says, if you walk according to this world, if you walk according to its affections, its lusts, its 
its uh, preoccupations, its priorities. Pleasure is its pursuit. In 2 Timothy chapter 4, verse 10, Paul writes, having loved this present world. He's talking about a person who abandoned the faith and who decided, I'm just going to walk away from God and I'm going to walk away from the Bible and I'm going to walk away from the church and I'm just going to live my life as if none of this Christianity stuff ever happened. Lust is its food. In 2 Peter chapter 1, verse 4, it says corruption that is in this world. And in verse 25, look what it says. Thus says the Lord of hosts, the God of Israel, saying, You and your wives have spoken with your mouths and fulfilled with your hands, saying, We will surely keep our vows that we have made to burn incense to the queen of heaven and pour out drink offerings to her. You will surely keep your vow and perform your vows. What the Lord is doing here is he's employing irony. In other words, Jesus, or excuse me, Jesus, Jeremiah pleads with them to leave Egypt and go back to Judah. And they've said, but we've made promises to the goddess of fertility. We signed a contract. We made a vow. We promised that if we would bake the cakes to the goddess of fertility, and if we would take the wine and we would pour it into her offering, that she would make our women pregnant and that our family would be restored to them. Now, remember what, for those of you who have been following me in the book of Jeremiah, remember what these people had gone through war and devastation. Their husbands and their sons were killed and they had experienced every kind of weird and rotten and wicked thing. And they wanted some sense of normalcy, but they didn't want a normalcy that included having a right relationship and in the covenant relationship with the God of Israel. And so the Lord employs irony. He just basically said, you, you, you said you would keep your vows and perform your vows to all of these weird and wicked idols that you are going to continue to honor these false gods. And he's saying, OK. OK. Well, you know, I said for better or for worse, you know, I told my unbelieving partner, I I, I told my this person that I would would always be with them. And no matter how weird or wicked the sinful relationship is, when God says, I need you to walk away from this sinful relationship. But I made a promise. I made a promise that I would continue in this sinful relationship. And after all, God doesn't want me to break my promises. What did you promise? Well, I I promised that I would lie and cheat and steal in order to feed my family. And God wants me to keep my promise, right? No, God wants you to stop lying and cheating and stealing. And God wants you to do something different. But I made a promise. And again, he's using irony when he says, okay, you made a promise to false gods. Then you're going to have your way. And see, here's the painful thing. This is the painful lesson. The painful truth is that God will allow you to make foolish, selfish, sinful choices. I know because I've made foolish, selfish, sinful choices. Have you ever prayed a prayer like this? God, why didn't you stop me? Oh, I'm seeing some smiles. You don't have to admit it. I'll just admit it for you. God, why did you let me take that job? Why did you let me go in that particular direction? Why did you let me marry that person? (laughs) And then the Lord reminds you, "I I was there. Remember how you begged me? You begged and you pleaded with me, Lord, if you'll let me have this, I'll be forever happy. I'll I'll never complain again. I'll never ask for anything else. Lord, if you just let me have it, just please, please. So why didn't God stop me? Why didn't God stop you? Because you have real choices to make. 
God loves you, but God has given you the ability to choose or choose otherwise. To walk in the direction of obedience or to walk in the direction of disobedience. To walk in the direction of love or to walk in the direction of selfishness. The Lord spells it out. Jeremiah had reminded them of their youthful deliverance, their youthful love, their youthful betrothal to God, how they went after him in the wilderness in a land not sown. Now they went back on their promises. Now they had retracted their vows. Remember during that honeymoon period in the the land of Egypt, Lord, if you'll just let us out of here, if you'll just get us out of this bondage, if you'll just break the chains, if you will remove us from the master's whip, Lord, we will love you. We will serve you. We will obey you. And God raises up Moses and gives him an opportunity to leave the land of Egypt. And the same is true for each and every one of us. We cried out to God. We made a promise to Jesus. Lord, Jesus, if you will save me, if you will forgive my sin, if you will right the wrongs of my life, I will love you and I will serve you and I will submit to you. And then all of a sudden the flirtations begin to take place as we make our way back into the world. And then Jesus reminds you, I saved you from that. I delivered you from that. That's not a part of your life. That isn't who you are. So the Lord spells out the truth, the truth about those who had forsaken the promised land for Egypt. And again, this becomes a type and a symbol of those who know the truth and then depart from the truth. So why is it? Why why do some who initially embrace Christianity and Christ? Why is it some who are so on fire? They love the Bible. They love Jesus. And then all of a sudden. The Bible's not important. Jesus isn't important. The church isn't important. For some, it's the lust of the world. For some, it's the applause of this world in Revelation 13.3. For some, it's the money that this world seems to offer. In 1 Timothy 6.17, it says, Them that are rich in this world. They begin to contrast and compare. This is what God has to offer. And this is what the world has to offer. This is what Jesus has to offer. And this is what this world and this world system has to offer. That's right. Satan is the God of this world. Second Corinthians four, four. He blinds people. People in this world reason, not faith is their ultimate authority. If they can't think it through. Then they'll just embrace what the world has to say. It's described as the wisdom of this world in 1 Corinthians chapter 2. This present life is all that's important to them. And so that's one of the reasons. All of a sudden they lose sight of eternity. They lose sight of the cross. They lose sight of heaven. They lose sight of the future. And for a brief moment, for a specific moment, all they can think about is their loneliness. And their pain and their emptiness and their disappointment. And so it becomes important for them to try and feed that. And so look what it says in verse 26. Therefore, hear the word of the Lord, all Judah, who dwell in the land of Egypt. Behold, I have sworn by my great name, says the Lord, that my name shall no more be named in the mouth of any man in Judah in all the land of Egypt, saying, the Lord God lives. Now, I want you in verse 26, look what it says, who dwell in the land of Egypt. Where are they dwelling? In the place of disobedience, in the place of rebellion, in the place of this world. By my great name, not the simple sound of the name of God, but all that that name implies, God's character, God's being. In other words, to call on the name of the Lord is to affirm who he is and what he has revealed. The Lord swears by my great name that my name shall no more be named in the mouth of any man in Judah, in the land of Egypt, saying the Lord God lives. What does this mean? What do you think he means by this? What he's saying is. Anyone can call on the name of the Lord. The Lord God lives. Yes, we've left Judah. Jerusalem is gone. We've gone into Egypt, but I'm still a Jew. 
And I'm still going to call on the name of the Lord. And the Christian who says, I'm still a Christian. I went to church. I prayed a prayer. I have a Bible. But I'm going to live like an unbeliever. I'm going to live in rebellion and disobedience. And when necessary, I'm going to call on the name of the Lord. Do you understand what is taking place here? What the Lord is saying is when a person is living in a state of personal, persistent rebellion. Do they have the right to call on the name of God and expect the favor of God? In other words, for the person who says, look, I know That I'm living in a state of rebellion. I know that I'm living in a state of disobedience. I know that I'm living in a state of willful, persistent rebellion. But I'm still going to call on God. I'm still going to pray before I eat. I'm still going to watch an occasional Christian show. And I'm still going to listen to an occasional Christian radio program. And in case things get really, really bad, then I'm going to cry out to God. But what the Lord is saying To the disobedient and the rebellious people who choose to remain in Egypt and choose to continue in idolatry and disobedience. What he is in effect saying is, don't expect anything from me. That's what he's saying. That my name shall no more be named in the mouth of any man of Judah in the land of Egypt. It's the Lord's way of saying, you're here. In Egypt, where you don't belong. What does the Lord want? The Lord wants you to leave Egypt and go back to the place of promise. So long as you're standing in the place of rebellion and disobedience, we can't have too much of a further conversation. Well, God's going to do what's right. God's going to make sure everything comes through. Look at verse 27. Behold. I will watch over them for adversity and not for good. And all the men of Judah who are in the land of Egypt shall be consumed by the sword and by famine until there's an end to them. Well, God's watching, right? Yeah, he's going to watch you perish. Well, what what can I do? In the end, it's all going to work out, right? Wrong. Behold, I will watch over them for adversity and not for good. The Lord promises adversity for the remnant of Egypt. Death, and not just any death, but a violent death. Now look what he says. Look what he says. Behold, I will watch over them for adversity and not for good. And all the men of Judah who are in the land of Egypt shall be consumed by the sword. You know what that means? Not just death, but a violent death. And by famine. That doesn't mean just going without. That means starvation. What does this mean? Violent death, starvation, extinction. What does this mean? For a person who's living in rebellion and disobedience in the place where that they don't belong, they can't have a reasonable expectation of favor from God. But this is a promise. I will watch over them for adversity and not for good. You know what? I've never met a single person who's underlined this passage in their Bible and say, Oh, that's a promise of God. I'm holding on to it. Well, that promise is for me. Uh, Yeah. It is for you. If you are living in a world of deep troubled commitment apart from God. So what are we to think about adversity? Sometimes it's the crushed grape that yields the wine. Viktor Frankl said, that which does not kill you makes you stronger. But here's what the Bible says. Persistent, unrepentant rebellion will kill you. Doesn't it make sense to you that the Bible goes, please, please, please. If you find yourself in in a place of rebellion or disobedience, turn away. What of the Christian? The old Puritan preacher Richard Baxter says, 
He is not drowning his sheep when he washeth them, nor killing them when he is shearing them. But by this he showeth that they are his own, and that the new shorn sheep do most visibly bear his name or mark, when it is almost worn out and scarce discernible on them that they have the longest fleece. Richard Baxter is in effect saying, look, God isn't trying to kill you. He washes the sheep. He doesn't slaughter the sheep. He shears the sheep. He shows those people who... Who belong to him by giving them every opportunity, every opportunity. And every once in a while, God will knock and he'll say, I'm knocking on the door of your heart. I'm begging you. I'm asking you when you find yourself in that place where you don't belong. Will you please go in a different direction? William Gurnall said God would not rub so hard if it were not to fetch out the dirt that is ingrained in our natures. When I was a kid. I visited my other grandma, not the one who died now and I'm getting ready to do the funeral, but my other grandmother. And she hadn't seen me in years and years and years. And she stuck me in the tub and I have a birthmark. And she started scrubbing and scrubbing and scrubbing. And I go, Grandma, what are you doing? I'm trying to get this dirt off your skin. I go, Grandma, it's a birthmark. It's never going to come out. That's what Gurnall is saying. When the Lord does see something and he rubs and he rubs and he rubs, he says God loves purity so well he would rather see a hole than a spot in his child's garment. And so sometimes when he sees that spot, he's saying, I I don't seem to be able to get it out, so I'm just going to cut it out. Because I would rather you walk around with a hole in your shirt than a stain on it. This is an old fashioned way of saying when God sees something in your life that doesn't belong there, don't be shocked and surprised if he's going to cut it out. And then in verse 28, there's hope. Look at how it's filled with hope. Yet a small number who escape the sword. That's a violent death shall return from the land of Egypt to the land of Judah and all the remnant of Judah who have gone to the land of Egypt to dwell there shall know Whose words will stand, mine or theirs? Now think about this. If there are survivors, the survivors will leave Egypt and go back to the place where they belong. A small window of hope opens. Those who escape the sword can return to the land, from the land of Egypt to the land of Judah. And, but a certain judgment remains for all the remnant of Judah who have gone to the land of Egypt to dwell there. And what a powerful statement. The people who had rejected God's word, the people who had rejected God's plan, would soon discover the truth. God's word will stand. And this is the Lord's way of saying, one of us is right. And one of us is wrong. One of us is telling the truth. And one of us isn't. In the end, whose word will stand? In the end, which will be proven true and which will be proven false? You know, we talked about what God can do and what God can't do. You've probably heard it said God can do anything. And that statement is only partially true. Is anything too hard for God? Well, no. But there are certain things that God cannot do. Did you know that? The Lord cannot break his word. Jesus said the scripture cannot be broken. John 10, 35. Titus 1, 2. Paul writes, the Lord cannot lie. Second Timothy 2.13, the Lord cannot deny himself. James 1.13, the Lord cannot be tempted or tested by evil. So what is it that the Lord cannot do? The Lord cannot break his word. The Lord cannot lie. The Lord cannot deny himself. The Lord cannot be tested or solicited to do that which is evil and that which is wrong. There are things that God cannot do. He cannot act in a way that is inconsistent with his character or his word. He cannot do that. He will not do that. 
And so when the Lord says, I will spare you. I will love you. I will forgive you. I will take you back. And then we end with what the sinners cannot do. And this shall be a sign to you, says the Lord, that I will punish you in this place, that you may know that my words will surely stand against you for adversity. This is the sign. This is the only sign given in the book of Jeremiah. Here's what he's basically saying. If you stay here, it's going to be bad for you. Where is here? It's the place of rebellion and it's the place of disobedience. Signs are not always given to confirm belief. That's the shocking thing about this passage. Usually a sign is given in order to ensure something that is believed. But here it's to confirm unbelief. And and here's the understanding for the person the Lord is saying who refuses to hear Jeremiah's word and remains in the place of rebellion and disobedience. It's going to turn out bad. And by the way, it's been my experience that that's always true. It's always true. It's been my experience when you find yourself in a place where you don't belong, admit it and go, I don't belong here. (laughs) This is not where God wants me. The place of rebellion and disobedience is not where God wants me. There are certain things that a sinner cannot do. A sinner can't reverse what God does or what God establishes. A sinner cannot make God's judgment go away. In Numbers 23:18 it says I cannot go beyond the word of the Lord. In Job chapter 23 verses 8 and 9 it says a sinner cannot find God by himself. Job writes I cannot perceive him. A sinner can't supply what is lacking. A sinner can't please God. A sinner can't see or enter the kingdom of God. A sinner can't be where Christ is. Whether I go, you can't come, it says in John 8:21, as he's talking to the religious leaders. A sinner can't bridge the gulf between the saved and the unsaved, as Jesus describes the story in Luke chapter 16 about the rich man and Lazarus. And the rich man goes to the place where the unrighteous dead, and there's this gigantic chasm between them And he says, Father Abraham, send Lazarus over that he can dip his finger in a cool cup of water and just simply place it on my tongue. And Abraham says, there's a great gulf between us, which human beings can't pass. So how can a sinner make it? They have to have a savior. They have to have a savior. And so in verse 30, it says, thus says the Lord, behold, I will give Pharaoh hope for a king of Egypt into the hand of his enemies and into the hand of those who seek his life. As I gave Zedekiah, the king of Judah, into the hand of Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, his enemy who sought his life. Hopra reigned from 588 B.C. to 569 B.C. Amasis, a court official, led a revolt against Hopra, became the co-regent for a few years. Then he was executed. Wearsby writes, keep in mind that it was Pharaoh Hopra who agreed to help Zedekiah against the Babylonians and his help proved worthless. Historians tell us that a part of the Egyptian army revolted against Hopra and the general who stopped the rebellion was proclaimed king. He reigned along with Hopra, but three years later, Hopra was executed. Nebuchadnezzar then appeared on the scene and Jeremiah's other prophecy was fulfilled. What does all of that mean to you and me? What it means is God said, You went into Egypt with the idea that this guy was going to save your bacon. But I asked you to keep kosher. I asked you to trust me. You fled away from me thinking that provision and health and wholeness could somehow be found apart from me. And you trusted this and you trusted that and you trusted this and you trusted that and you trusted wrongly. That's what this means. The people had placed their trust in a fertility goddess. They placed their trust in the fourth king of the 26th dynasty. But Jeremiah has been a prophet to the nations. And this is his final message. This is his final word. He's been on a faithful journey. 
And the journey has ended in a strange land with a group of rebellious people. You know, it's interesting to me that the gospel changes everything. The gospel provides the answer to what can change the human heart. Repentance brings about a change in purpose. Luke 15, 18. I will arise and go to my father and say to him, Father, I've sinned against heaven and against you. First Thessalonians 1, 9. For this reason, we also, since the day we heard it, don't cease to pray for you and ask that we may be filled with the knowledge of his will and all wisdom and spiritual understanding that you can walk worthy of the Lord, fully pleasing him, being fruitful, increasing in the knowledge of God. Salvation brings a change in our position. We're no longer sinners. We're saved. Justification brings a change of our state of being from the inside out. Adoption means a change in our family. Redemption means a change of masters. We're no longer slaves to this world and Satan, but to Jesus. Sanctification brings a change of life and consecration brings a change of will. Can a sinner repent? The answer is yes. Can a sinner change his or her mind? The answer is yes. Can we experience a change of heart? The answer is yes. Can we experience a change of life? The Bible says yes. It's going to go by quickly from here on out. Let's pray. Heavenly Father. Lord, when we hear this last message of Jeremiah, when he pours out his heart and he begs his family and friends who have tried to find comfort and strength and support apart from God, apart from God's plan, Apart from God's promise, apart from God's future, he begged them, he begged them, he pleaded with them to turn from their sin. And Heavenly Father, we pray that we would become men and women who trust your plan, who trust your promise, who trust the future that you've promised to us in Jesus. In Jesus' name. Amen. Well, that went by quickly. Okay, let's stand.